hey, so America's on fire right now. Um, mm-hmm. And you're you're listening to this broadcast, this bonus episode of Real Sankara Hours. Um, yeah, right in the middle of a maelstrom of shit going on. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's fair to say this is the biggest social unrest since 1968. Um, yep. <laughs> I, you know, it's kind of funny when we recorded the episode on, I mean, that was last Wednesday. Yeah. Right. And it was like, you were bringing it up and I was like, oh, yeah, this, this stuff again. And, I, and then I, I didn't realize, I mean, I think literally as soon as we stopped recording is when I... Yeah started is when the shit really started to pop off and i didn't i didn't expect it to get this that big and that militant that quickly right um yeah i don't know if anyone did yeah i yeah i mean i i when we recorded i knew like people were you know protesting in minneapolis but when we recorded i didn't know like it was going to get as big as it is now where there's like yeah you basically have like you know the largest like sort of domestic uprising you're right since 1968 and we're recording this on may 31st 2020 this is real sankara hours bonus episode after hours content for our lovely patrons um tonight we're going to read um we're going to read for a revolutionary position on the negro question by harry haywood a uh black communist who was a member of the cp usa um this came out in 1958 so yeah um, yeah um i yeah i harry haywood's definitely one of my faves um i think i don't think i'd read this one but i'd read some of his stuff earlier uh but you know there's a tendency Perhaps there's a tendency to look at this stuff as outdated, but I was surprised at exactly oh. how um, relevant a lot of it is, including like the direct questions of self-determination. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. So we'll get into that, but I guess first a little background. Um, Harry Haywood was born in 1898, wow, um, to f- former slaves. I mean... He grew up very working class. He joined the Communist Party like in the twenties, um, and yeah, I mean, he actually went to Moscow, and I think he was there. He was there like when Trotsky got kicked out of the party, and Whoa. he actually like wrote up a whole thing about it, um, which is actually very. It's very interesting, you know to read sort of the perspective of like just a regular person especially like a black american in you know the communist party um at the time because you know i'm not going to get into all that but um you know he was he was very much like uh yeah he yeah he was very much like trained in you know the soviet in the 1920s um the Soviet Union had like opened a couple, a bunch of schools that were basically like revolutionary schools and people could come all across the world to mm. study and, and literally learn how to do revolution and like learn Marxism as a science, but also like how to run a printing press, how to like withstand torture, you know, I mean, like real stuff. Um, Damn. 
And so he, yeah, he was, he was in the common turn and he was a big part um, in developing the black belt thesis, which was the communist party's position on, you know, what they called the Negro question, you know, AKA, you know, race, you know, institutional racism, you know, oppression. Um, and he what you know the communist party at the time stood out because it was basically the only political organization in the country you know the only like uh i guess multiracial one that like took a revolutionary position on you know the issue of racism in that it wasn't just a problem of uh equal rights and discrimination but you know, they understood that African-Americans constituted an oppressed nation. And yeah. a big part of the comment, the third international, the common turn, um, and, you know, Stalin himself um, pushed, he pushed the CPUSA specifically and also just communist parties in general to focus on oppressed colonized nations as sort of the real as having the real revolutionary potential especially after you know all the potential revolutions in europe western europe flamed out um and so you know that's what like these international schools were about um and he was you know he was big in the uh scottsboro case scottsboro mm -hmm. boys case um which which was one of the first sort of like internationally international news like uh legal cases about um you know black black men being falsely accused of things and denied justice i um yeah and that's like that's i think this was um uh very apropos to choose this to read peter like especially yeah. <laughs> right now because um, yeah, like I said in the um, previous episode we recorded, and it's something that um, it's a point I want to keep making because I think like it's something that gets lost in the discourse on race because because um, even Harry Haywood mentioned this that he basically mentioned that black America, like black America, African Americans, uh, the American Negro, whatever name. I mean, like, there is the American Negro, and like, at, at, during Haywood's time, then there's, like, you know, African American. And by the way, the first term, like, I, th I think, you know, some black folks get, um, get divided on the term African American, but the, the first uses of the term African American was it during, uh, right during the American Revolution, actually, in the 1700s. That was the first time mm -hmm. the term African American was used. Um, and basically, like, african-american identity is an ethnic and national identity um even if, like even if you go on wikipedia it says like african-americans are an ethnic group in the united states so like you know it's it's not it's not a controversial position to say that like um you know african-americans black america or this thing we call blackness or negritude it's not just some sort of vague thing like it's an actual real thing with components to yeah. it um, and I think like, you know, that's something that gets lost. Um, and so like, yeah, like when you think of national identity, national ethnic identity, it's, you know, shared ancestry, common history, heritage, 
common culture and cultures like you know music food yeah uh way of life those sorts of things like those are the sorts of things that like um like they're the thing about culture is like it's very subtle but you know it when you see it like you know it when you're when you go from one culture to another that things are different right like people just have different ways of life um and so even um the united nations actually uh in the u.n charter recognizes the right of self-determination for nations of people well yes yeah and yeah the soviet union had a big hand in getting the un to even acknowledge that um so specifically this essay um which was longer than i thought it was honestly it's very it's like 60 pages but it's good he yeah he wrote it in 57 and well you know at that point like so basically at the communist party had turned into like a pretty significant political force by the 30s and you know, was very instrumental in getting the New Deal to happen. And people, whenever, you know, sort of social Democrat types talk about like, oh, yeah, we just need like a new Roosevelt, new New Deal. I mean, you get, you only got the New Deal because you had like an active and effective right. Communist Party. Um, oh, just two things uh, before, before we forget. Yeah. But um, the Communist Party um, also did play a big role in... Um, organizing black people in the south against uh jim crow um yeah racial segregation and also at the time this is really important in terms of chronology um uh harry haywood is writing this i think like yeah like 57 58 around there like right around that time um i guess it was published multiple times or something like that but yeah somewhere like you know basically yeah he wrote in 57 yeah okay so like basically like mid to late 50s around there and in 1955 was the Supreme Court decision of uh, Brown v. Board of Education. I think wait, wait, 1955 yeah. or 1954. I, I think, uh, yeah, I think it was 54. He gets right. into that a lot. And yeah. some things that I didn't quite, that so, were new yeah. for me. But just to, just yeah, just to finish the, uh, the background. Um, so the you know after in the war there was sort of a united front because basically people you know the common turn which ended up being disbanded um during the war um because as part partly as a way to like you know ally with the u.s um yeah there was a united front so basically it was like yeah so everyone has to team up to defeat fascism and the nazis um and of course the Soviet Union bore most of the brunt, but for the CPUSA, it was much more of a like integration. You know, they, it it worked its way into like higher levels of government, and sort of famously, uh, Henry Wallace, uh, Roosevelt's vice president, was like pretty friendly with them. Um, but after the war uh, is when you got McCarthyism, right? And there was this, you know, when the Cold War set in. Um, the you know the u.s government went after the cpusa pretty hard and i you know at and also at the same time like after stalin died and khrushchev came to power he did this whole he did the whole secret speech denouncing stalin and basically like kind of abandoning any you know sort of support of any like revolutionary movements in the united states 
um, it basically, you know, worked out what they called peaceful coexistence. So that really kind of left um, the CPUSA hanging. And I think part of that, you know, I guess in their defense for their kind of shameless revisionism in this regard was that, you know, they kind of are doing everything they could to, uh, to like barely survive, I guess. I don't know. It's been, but uh, what had happened, what happened was basically in the fifties um, and this is, and this was what prompted him to write this essay is that the CPUSA basically dissolved all the work they were doing, organizing black workers and fighting for that. And basically said like, we'll let the the, the NAACP's in charge of anything related to black people. Um, and we're just going to follow them and do what they do. And, uh, you know, and Harry Haywood did not, I mean, he really didn't appreciate this and he thought like it was a disgrace and eventually he got, uh, kicked out of the party over this. Um, but you know, before he, at, but he also wrote this piece sort of explaining that the question of self-determination is still one of vital importance for the black freedom struggle. Um, so yeah, uh, so that, that's what, that's what it was about. And, um, yeah, what was your, cause this is probably a little more Soviet. <laughs> this is a little, probably a little more Marxist than I, I don't know. What was your opinion of it? What I was think your initial it, take? I liked it. I thought it was, I thought, yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it makes like, he makes a case, a strong case for, black self-determination um yeah i just want to just so yeah brown v board of education just to backtrack it was 1954 and it was the um supreme court decision that outlawed racial segregation in public schools it basically said public schools that are racially segregated are unconstitutional even if the schools are otherwise equal so plessy versus ferguson which was 1898 established the whole separate but equal that like oh that basically the South used that precedent to say, we can have racial segregation as long as we can argue that the the facilities are equal in quality, basically. But what happened is that, like, in the South, and this actually ties into what Haywood is saying, particularly about the plantation economy of the South, which um, is that the thing about Jim Crow is um, I think people think that it was just just purely about separation for separation's sake but the separation was meant to preserve the old plantation economy during slavery so yeah. it's like it's like okay so we're not it's basically okay slavery's outlawed but we'll still have the same basically like fucked up uh plantation yeah. eco economy that exploits black labor and so the south yeah. was based use separate but equal to justify the those the, those essentially like racial apartheid practices in the in south of the mason dixon so brown v board of education was saying that okay even if the schools are equal in quality uh separation is still wrong which um yeah yeah i there they do yes they do make us i i do i don't remember the entire specific legal argument that's made it does that does kind of make sense um but I mean, also don't really care. 
you know, the Supreme Court, I think one of the one of the things that he mentioned um, that I found fascinating was he basically, well, he, he was quoting the president of Howard University, but he was saying, but basically, because, um, like, this, you know, people act like the Supreme Court is this sort of independent judiciary that doesn't get politically involved ever, and it's right. not the case at all, I mean... This, the the court the cases the Supreme Court takes and the decisions they make are fully made with an understanding of like the political landscape in yeah. you know and I think that's basically true for every court I mean yeah. that whole sort of AP that whole civic people really got to get out of the idea that like what you learned in civics class or AP gov really has anything to do with the reality of um you know, how any of these institutions work. But so, yeah. Yeah. You, I, yeah. I, sorry, just to cut you off. The reason why I just want to say, just to make this one quick point, the reason why I mentioned the Brown v. Board is because I think this ties into Haywood's point, which is I think he's, he's, he's sort of carving out a different position than just pro-segregation or anti-segregation. Like, and I think that's what i found interesting is that because i think what he was saying what he's basically getting at is that like even if you integrate it's it's not going to be enough for black freedom there has to be real self-determination um and i think like i can tell throughout his piece he was basically poking holes in the um I think, like, basically the liberal integration consensus that was emerging, particularly from groups like yeah. the NAACP. Like the NAACP. Yeah, he goes hard at the NAACP. Yeah, because there was basically, like, like I, I was involved in the NAACP in college, and, like, you know, it is, um, I mean, it, it has it has its ups and downs, but, like, the, the good thing I will say about the NAACP is that they're nonpartisan. Like, they don't do official national endorsements, but it is, Technic, and for a uh, yeah. Yeah, it is, but all and always has been a very bourgeois reformist organization in terms of its politics. Like that's just, uh, that's just. I'm just. I'm not even. I'm not even trying to make a moral statement. It's just like that's just what it is as an organization. So, Harry Haywood, I can tell, like he was basically poking holes at the yeah NAACP liberal integrationist which really meant assimilation but i think the yeah. integration meant assimilation and uh, yeah even, uh, yeah he was very clear about that yeah i actually want to bring up uh before i forget this um this uh, quote this quote from adam clayton powell that i think ties into um yeah here it is so adam clayton powell was uh, um a black congressman from harlem and he was um very instrumental in getting a lot of desegregation bills passed, but even he um, was critical of of uh, integration, and he was actually like, honestly, if you listen to his speeches, he was way like, you know, to the left of a lot of black politicians. So in his autobiography, Adam by Adam, which I think again like ties into what Haywood's saying, he says um, about black power, he says. Uh, Blacks must distinguish between desegregation and integration. Desegregation removes all barriers and facilities and facilities access to an open society. Integration accomplishes the same accomplishes the same thing, but has a tendency to denude the Negro of pride in in himself. Blacks must seek desegregation, thereby 
retaining pride in participation in their own institutions, just as other groups, the Jews, Irish, Italians, and Poles have done. Negroes are the only group in America that has utilized the word integration in pursuing equality. So it's it's a very like different argument that I think like because Adam Clayton Powell was not a communist, but I think he he has very similar critiques of the liberal integration approach to yeah. equality that Haywood has. It's wow, Haywood has a Marxist explicitly Marxist take, but I think like there's a what I found fascinating is that like th- there's a critique of the liberal integration approach to uh getting equality quote-unquote for black people but that's like yeah yeah, well i think and i think that like integration wasn't really that uh that popular amongst like the working class um yeah right and and i mean he's very but i just wanted to say this one quote about brown versus board which is harry haywood quotes the president of howard who said that there's no question that the Supreme Court decision against segregation was dictated by international considerations. Before the American people even knew it, it had been translated into 40 languages. One would conclude from this that the power of world socialism wrested this concession from American ruling circles. Um, yeah. Heavy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, with... I, yeah. I actually want to dig into that quote because I think... Um... Because I think what was going on, if I remember, this is a, this was a long piece. I I feel, I, I think Haywood since said this, but um, at the time, like Eisenhower, who was president at the time, like he had to basically make the case internationally that the United States is a leader of the free world. But yeah, he had to wrestle that PR with the reality of racial segregation in the United States, and so basically, like. This is the thing, like, the reason why I mentioned Brown v. Board is, like, you know, as I was telling you, Peter, like, at this time, this is when you begin to see the real political fault lines emerge when it comes to liberal versus conservative. And basically the fault line revolves around uh, the question of integration of black people into American society. And, like, and, and this is where that fault line begins to really, really emerge. So, like, the, like the, the fucking divides that we talk about in liberal versus conservative, like, it's all about yeah. basically integration and assimilation of right. black people and minorities, racial minorities, into America. Like, that's that's the real question. Like, yeah. it's not about I, taxes or big government or all the other shit. It's about uh, integration. I think, like, I think, yeah, I think the President Howard, like, that was interesting that – um. In some ways, yeah, like there was a international well, PR considerations at stake. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, there was no really such thing as a conservative Republican until '64 with Goldwater, and Goldwater was just, uh, Barry Goldwater was specifically running against the Civil Rights Act. Right. Um, exactly. And that's, right. that that was basically the birth of what we consider the modern day Republican Party in terms of its politics. Yeah. Yeah, up until up until that point, it's basically just a bourgeois party of like northern capitalists, right? Rock, you know Rockefeller famously, um, but yeah, very much it it was it was very much a perfect storm in the sense of like the U S the U S had to you know part of, part of its propaganda was to you know part of its Cold War propaganda is that it's the leader of democracy and freedom. Um, and of course, the main problem with that is the entire racialized cast of people who, you know, are legally denied, you know, any 
freedom or democracy. And so, you know, and the Soviet Union was didn't didn't wasn't quiet about that either. And so, but you know, they but can like they couldn't just, you know, concede it outright and they had to do it in a way that didn't embolden communism. Uh one of the, so one of the things they did was they got like whatever the hot jazz musicians. I think Louis Armstrong went on one of these and maybe maybe James Brown whenever he came up um they get uh like goodwill tours where basically they would like tour uh you know Europe and be like basically be like yeah no America's great no racism here we love it don't oh we, don't yeah there are a lot of it. there are a lot yeah. of jazz musicians who were basically just doing U.S. propaganda during the Cold War yeah, like, yeah jazz music was like <laughs> and and also like despite inheriting basically the entire like imperial capitalist system from the British Empire after World War Two, um, they had to the U.S. like basically positioned itself as like, yeah, no, we don't like colonialism either. We're like an anti, you know, we were a decolonized country. I mean, they literally like tried to say like, yeah, the American Revolution was an anti-colonial revolution and shit like that. Um, you know, we just we we just don't like communism. And they really made it seem like it was just like, yeah, no, we don't have a problem with with like national independence it's just it's just this thing we have where we just really don't like communism yeah um, yeah and, there and was so like... yeah so it was like a perfect storm that um the cpusa would basically abandon any advocating for you know the black working class and cede the ground to the naacp um and with that basically any abandoning basically any understanding of the black working class as having a central role in the black freedom struggle and that i didn't realize that like how direct a move that was and it it actually like it explains a whole lot especially as like when you grow up if you grow up like you know and you learn like like whatever they teach you in february or if you watch eyes on the prize the documentary and it is very much like, yeah, no, there's never any, like, labor questions, really. It's yeah. never really about that. It's always, like, yeah, people in suits um, demanding, you know, the ability to drink out at certain water fountains. And that was the whole thing. But that was not the thing at all. And um, they very much basically had to, like, demobilize the black American working class, Um you know, in order to achieve the civil rights reforms. Yeah, and um, yeah, and and I'm I'm looking through, uh, like he's really, um, he's very. I think thorough. what I I I think like uh, what was interesting is because I just finished Black Bourgeoisie by E. Franklin Fraser, and that was basically like, but she shouts out. <laughs> yeah, and uh, like he he uh, there's a sort of subheader in this in this essay is the negro movement mainly a bourgeois effort and it's like yeah like there was there's always been and i think like we're going to have to i think like this definitely applies to today and i think you can even see it like you can see this fault line here now with the riots is that like there is a certain segment of the black community like a small segment like even during slavery there was a small segment of what you call uh, free people of color who were freed who were black people who were not slaves who lived yeah. in the north and 
had some degree of access to white society. Um, but they still, because they were black, and blackness meant slave in America, like, there's always a risk that they could be kidnapped and get sent back and get sent into slavery. So they didn't really have, like, equal rights the way, way that whites yeah. did, even though, like, they could live in the same space as white people. Um, I think there was, like, a riot. Like, there was, uh, I think there was some riot in American history where basically, like, uh, white people burned down this building that was used by um, black abolitionists. Um, so, so yeah, like, they had, to, they had to face shit like that. So, uh, but at the same time, like, there are some what you call like black upper class bourgeoisie boule whatever you want to say who who um always acted as representatives of black people because they had immediate access to white society but the thing is like they were a lot of them were always uh very disconnected from yeah black people. Uh, yeah of... i mean i mean that yeah that the the black bourgeois class what didn't really have a whole lot of power in the 19th and early 20th century. There really wasn't that much of them. And the power, I mean, really came from an organized working class. Yeah. Um, that is, yeah. that's really like, that That was really the mobilization that achieved any sort of gains post uh, civil war. Um, uh, try yeah. Let me find... I just, I want to uh, like kind of just finish the point. Like, because, because like even, um, there's that class element, that class divide has always existed within black America, even going back to slavery. And so like after slavery, like those, um, like the sort of, uh, A. Franklin Frazier goes in like how like the black middle class or upper class, upper class kind of changes over time from slavery then to, to the Jim Crow era. And then like to, cause he, cause Frank, actually Frazier wrote the book, right around the same time that Haywood publishes published this publishes mm -hmm. this so 1957 so this is like yeah actually yeah like a very pivotal time in american history um so um yeah like there was like a kind of development of the black upper middle class during jim crow who um uh you know, like, I mean, they weren't really, like, a bourgeoisie. Like, they didn't own as much capital as white society. That's the thing. But they overinflated how much wealth and power they had. But Fraser points out, like, actually wasn't that much. Like, they, 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 like yeah, like, they have money, but not... Yeah. Like, they're not swimming in it. Um, uh, And so, I think the reason why I mentioned it, because why I think it's relevant to today, is that even today, like, there is this, like, kind of group of quote-unquote black leaders who claim to speak on behalf of the black community but like they're disconnected from the masses of working class black people like if you were to consider black america a nation like it's largely like a working class nation for the most part if you're going to use that term loosely like so these black leaders like they have access to white society and they have like a little bit more money and comfort and privileged than regular black people but they're supposed to be seen as representatives and talking heads for the black community and so like they're the ones who get access to like cnn corporate media and like like and these white uh um interviewers are, are like so what what do you think about the riots like what do black people think and they guess like some talking mm -hmm. head who a lot of times like very few times like has very little 
roots in the black community or even some sense of what's going on. And so um, I think Haywood really points out this divide that like, you know, he says, is the Negro movement mainly a bourgeois effort? So it's basically like, okay, like this sort of Negro movement that's emphasizing liberal integration, um, like, is it a bourgeois effort? Like, is it something that the work, the black working class actually demanded? And I think um, he pokes some holes in it. And I think like you can apply it to today because I think even these black liberals, these black talking heads, uh, you know, you and I, Peter, we've been talking about this like <laughs> on and off record. Like they're just, they have no credibility, yeah. especially now. Well, like, there's no credibility. I don't Well, it's, it. I mean, it's funny because it's like history, basically like the past is never the past type thing. So, right. I mean, what he's, what he's describing is actually like, like the foundations of the problem now were forged in the fifties. Um, let me, he's got some really good quotes. So he's talking about the weakness of the of the black bourgeoisie. He says the Negro upper class came too late upon the scene of American economic development to get in on the ground floor of modern industrial enterprise to share in the so-called benefits of, quote unquote, free enterprise. The fact that the Negro nation is set down in the midst of the leading imperialist nation in which there is no physically delimited national territorial market. Um, has relegated the sphere of activity of this bourgeois to non-industrial marginal pursuits, you know, basically like Madam C.J. Walker, right. right? Like you get, like you could sell, you know, makeup and hair supplies and you could run the numbers games and, you know, maybe, um, you know, do little stuff, you know, maybe own a grocery yeah. store or something. But yeah, yeah they were, you would never, it was just never allowed or even thought of to have like a black owner of a factory right um, you know right. It, it has never been in position to challenge u.s imperialist economic domination and looks to other channels and byways for its future development seeking to accommodate itself to the overwhelmingly dominant imperialist bourgeoisie this accounts for the fact that the negro bourgeoisie has never raised fundamental demands for negro liberation and for the growing aspirations of a section of the upper stratum become compradors, direct economic and political agents of imperialism, not only in relation to the Negro market, but also in regard to the colonial and semi-colonial lands of Africa, which is, wow. You um, sh- wait, oh, holy fuck. Let me, let me find, so semi-colonial lands um, of Africa. Fuck. Oh, yeah. yeah. Damn, yeah, the split in the bourgeoisie, yeah, this. Yeah, no, yeah, that's, I mean, that's he, that's really, he really goes all the way in, and then sort of i i've i've turned it into a pdf so i could Mm. uh paginate it oh yeah and highlight oh i should have done that i should have done that highlight shit Um, i have it online but um but then he says in order to maintain the suppression of the negro people wall street operating through its enlightened liberal wing uh one of the things he does in this piece is he repeatedly ties wall street to the Dixiecrats, yeah, um, which I think yeah. is, is very, very smart. Oh god! Um, oh yeah, that was incredibly smart because it 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 eliminates that sort of liberal notion that like okay, the liberal enlightenment. Yeah, the South is just this alien space that doesn't yeah. that is just barbaric. backward for no discernible reason. Yeah. It's like the South um, is all uh, racist and barbaric, but it's like, actually, no, the North had a huge role. Because that's yeah. actually like, I mean, because, I mean, uh, like, I, like two things, like, cause to, to, 
to hammer that point about the connection between Wall Street and the South and how it plays into this economy is that the South is where like the raw materials were produced. So like, that's where you had like the cotton and all the yeah. like, cash crops cultivated by black labor, you know, first as slaves and then as cash crop uh, uh, sharecroppers. But the finance capital was always in the North. And even yeah. Wall Street, like, I mean, we've said before, like, insurance started from the slave trade. Wall Street was a slave market. So, like, all the finance, the finance capital um, of the slave economy, which was also basically the engine for modern day capitalism and neoliberalism, was all in the North. So, like, there's no separation between the economy of the North and the economy of the South. Like, yeah. they're both intertwined. They just have different purposes. Finance capitals in the North and the raw material shit is in the, is in the, is in the South. But it's, it's part of the yeah. same uh, system, the economic system. Yeah, and in fact, I often find that America makes a little more sense if you think it a bit as, like, different economic regions than try to understand it yeah. as, like, a whole national economy. Right. And in many ways, the South is like intentionally underdeveloped. Um, there's a there's a paragraph uh, earlier on where he's talking about you know the South after you know in, basically when the 20th century hit it it did do some industrialization as the cot as cotton crops. Um, well, actually, the big thing you know one of the interesting things is that like the reason cotton declined as a powerful force in United States was just that the British found it was cheaper to grow it in Egypt and buy it in Egypt. And that was basically, <laughs> um, you know, why Mississippi went for and Alabama went from being extremely rich to extremely poor. But he says, um, as we stated in Negro liberation, the result of the guiding strategy of Wall Street is that in de industrial development of the South is distorted and lopsided, geared as it is to the expediency of the absentee owners, rather than to the necessities of the region and its people. Industrialization is geared toward the extraction of raw materials and natural resources and primary processing of agricultural products. This industrialization, promoted by Wall Street, is kept strictly within the limits of maintaining monopoly advantages, control, and super profits, assuring the $4 billion a year super profits extracted from the special exploitation of the negro people so what he's saying is that like one of one of the key arguments he's making is that like the economic problems of the south of underdevelopment cannot be solved without in you know, a revolutionary movement for self-determination and right. that um yeah though you know the south is still the south is still beholden to northern finance capital and this of course is the, what why you know there's such resentment to towards the north and this was a big part of you know the anti-reconstruction efforts and all that stuff um i i want to uh kind of pivot to because there's a there is something he said that like really applies to this whole race versus class debate which like for years has gotten <laughs> on my fucking nerves but when i read this passage i was like I want to send this like, every time wants to everyone every time someone wants to say tattoo it into the brain of every DSA yeah. person and Michael Tracy and all and every idiot on Twitter. Oh <laughs> god, yeah, they should all read this, have it tattooed on their brain, and then shut up. So, uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna read like a couple quotes. I'm gonna read a couple quotes and then get to the final kicker. So this is like the first couple quotes, and then I'll I'll announce the kicker. So he says. 
The territory of the Deep South belongs to the Negro people. They have earned it as no other people have earned a homeland. So this ties into, like, you know, some arguments I hear between, like, Pan-Africanists versus, like, some reparations advocates, which is, like, you know, there are people who are, like, let's go back to Africa, let's, like, you know, build with Africa, like, you know, sort of a black exodus argument. And then there are others who are, like, well, um, that's feasibly impossible, but also, like, we've earned some bit of right to this piece of America even if we're not indigenous to the land, like we've cultivated this land so much, particularly in the South, of like, hey, we deserve some some equity in, in it or some stake in it, right? So that's what he's saying, like right here. Like the territory of the deep south belongs to the Negro people. They have earned it as no other people have earned a homeland. This is the meaning of self-determination, he says, that the Negro people in full possession of their homeland have the right to decide the political future of that area. The problem we face is how to bring about unity of Negro and white toilers in the common struggle against U.S. Imper- against U.S. imperialism in the present period, and beyond that, how to fundamentally solve the Negro question under socialism. socialism. Socialism can only be built on the basis of the complete democracy for the masses. Socialism must tap into the resources resources of the population and develop all human potential. Um, this is leading up to the kicker, but this is a good line. Even with the elimination of legal discrimination and the abolition of exploitation, the historically formed inequality, the the economic and cultural disparity disparity between Negro and white will not disappear with one blow. The age-old rancor of the oppressed Negro will not disappear, nor will the deeply ingrained white chauvinism among the white masses. Uh, The Negro masses in the Deep South must have guarantees in the concrete form of political power to protect their equality. Um, that's a really good one, but then it leads up to, I'm skipping a paragraph and I'm going to lead to this one. This is the line. I feel like, like, this is sort of like, I feel like this is the mm-hmm. preamble and this is like the fucking just boom, just ah, like yeah. right here. Okay. So he says it is impermissible for the white working class of the U S to deny support to the right of self-determination for the Negro people in the deep South. We have already seen the corroding effect upon Negro-white unity within the party since the proposition to withdraw the right of self-determination was promulgated from above. The opportunist sacrifice of the struggle for Negro rights, which is at bottom a capitulation to U.S. imperialism, has opened up the floodgates to white chauvinism within our ranks, and at the same time it has encouraged nationalist moves among our Negro comrades, who question whether the white comrades will carry on a struggle for Negro rights. Boom. Boom. Yeah. Every yeah. fucking Michael Tracy, DSA people who are like, actually, it's class, man. Like, you shouldn't talk yeah. about well, identity. Yeah. It, all these, yeah. All these motherfuckers, <laughs> you just have that shit. Just like, here, I'm going to read these two fucking oh, lines can't. and shut up. Yeah. He even gets, uh, even in, in like the beginning, he says, uh, <laughs> The party's position was also a sharp break with the social democratic viewpoint in which racist oppression was considered of no relevance in defining the position of the Negro people in the United States. Uh. (laughs) According according to this view, the plight of the Negro people was regarded as purely a question of class, the same same as that of the working class in general. Thus, in the name of the general class struggle, it denied the special character of the Negro question. Regarding the fight for special demands of the Negro people as divisive and tending to distract the workers from the struggle of socialism. Dude, this so, is the same shit we've yeah, been, we've been uh, Fuck. 
One of the one of the great <laughs> things about Marxism is that you start to get into this stuff and you're like, oh wow, people they already figured all of this shit out like a hundred years ago. It's, yeah, yeah. Like, like oh man, <laughs> it's just weird because like a, a lot of these like white Marxists and like I don't, I don't even know if I should call them white Marxists because I think a lot of them are social democrats posing as Marxists, but they're the yeah, ones who are like I certainly I, haven't read Haywood. Right, exactly. Who is like very Marxist and quoting Lenin? I like that he like there was a really good quote from Lenin he he had. I forgot I forgot where it was, but yeah, there's a few of them that I yeah, didn't know about. Basically, like how Lenin was basically supporting the right of self determination, how that can like basically lead to international socialism. It's like, wait a minute, these are people who a lot of these people <clears throat> cosplay as Marxist or socialist, but it's like. They don't. They're not even aware of the own literature that they say that they talk about. So it's like, um, yeah, I just love that line. So it's like every time, like, like, because for fucking years, um, (laughs) the left has gone in this like this um yeah this goddamn back and forth on race versus class, and it's like, just read Harry Haywood, dude, and shut up. Yeah, just, just I don't even want it. I don't even like. There's no point arguing. Just like read Harry Haywood and shut the fuck up. Just, yeah, I yeah, wow, I I didn't even realize he was this thorough. I mean, he's right. he's so incredibly thorough, you know. And I he makes an extremely good point, which is that um, when you have like revisionist bullshit lines that leads to the problem of like white chauvinism in your organization, because it is because then it is like, oh yeah, you guys take a back seat you know, to us who are, like, doing the real thing. Um, And, in fact, and if you have an actual revolutionary line, then you actually are able to make, you know, people, everyone, like, struggle together as comrades. Right. And, you know, actually have, you know, multiracial unity. Um, Exactly. But Um, the only way you get that is through an actual revolutionary line on this stuff. And that is what a number of leftist organizations right now don't, you know, either they ignore entirely or they may give lip service to it, but then go back to like doing social Democrat stuff, basically, without naming any more names. Uh, Okay, here's the um, here. Here is the quote from Lenin that I thought was good. Yeah. Um, So he's quoting Lenin. We demand the freedom of self-determination, not because we dream of an economically atomized world, nor because we cherish the idea of small states, but on the contrary, because we are for large states and for a coming closer, even a fusion of nations, but on truly democratic, truly internationalist basis, which is unthinkable without the freedom of sep- without the freedom of separation. So basically what Lenin is saying is that like, national self-determination because i think what happens and I, I was talking to um andre and i were talking on on a twitch stream a couple of days ago is that like oftentimes because someone asked about pan-africanism so like both andre and i are explicit pan-africanists and so someone asked about like what pan-africanism is and this is something like balancing between white left circles and pan-african circles is interesting because most pan-africanists are socialists it's like amongst pan-africans yeah. like the socialism questions already been figured out it's like yeah we know capitalism sucks 
the next mm-hmm. question is how do we unify as black people throughout the world? Like that's the question, right. but they already figured out that like capitalism is bullshit. So in some ways being a pan-African socialist is almost redundant because even Kwame Nkrumah, like that was his goal is like pan-African pan-Africanism under scientific socialism, basically. And so what Lenin is saying is like pretty much in line with like, I think yeah. the understanding of a lot of even African socialists and pan-African socialists is that like, uh, you can have self-determination for oppressed nations of people, but it's supposed to evolve into like an international socialist global order, which is like, that's like a very galaxy brain take on, yeah. on, on things. And so, um, and yeah, it's like, you know, even Lenin figured this out. Yeah. Like, he's well, like, yeah, like, like, yeah. Well, the thing about the Lenin quote and the thing about the Russian empire is that it was like a very multi-ethnic empire. Yeah. And yeah. that one of the big problems that the Bolsheviks were trying to figure out was like trying to unite all these different ethnicities like under this common cause while also being like, you know, okay, but like we have if we have socialism, isn't it just going to be like Russians bossing us around again? And so they had to formulate, synthesize this right. understanding of self-determination such that like you can, you know, nations can uh, determine their future in a way that isn't, you know, sort of the bourgeois, you know, imperialist, violent, national, jingoistic nationalism we all hate. Um, yeah. And that, that was, you know, and the Soviet Union to when to varying degrees of success, um, you know, instituted these policies and Harry and Haywood was very specifically learning from that, those policies and applying them to, uh, to the United States. And I think, you know, yeah. other people may have di- other disagreements, but I think that that is actually an important way to understand, you know, because understand like, the racism question because it's like everyone you know there are you know dozens of indigenous nations yeah um that all deserve self-determination in any revolutionary future um you know sir black america constitutes its own nation of puerto rico and hawaii of course are right <laughs> you know deserve their own self-determination but it isn't yeah. also like it isn't doesn't necessarily have to mean separatism it doesn't have to mean right. that everyone's a sovereign state i mean people you know there may be advantages to you know still being unified under a some sort of larger government but the point is that they can you know people can they those people have determined can determine their own future so it says he says it is impossible for the working class in the u.s to organize an effective revolutionary movement and advance to socialism without fighting for full freedom to the negro nation the deep south that is to determine their own fate this of course does not mean that the negro people will inevitably secede from the u.s and set up a separate state this solution is only one form in which self-determination could be exercised then they decide on an autonomous regional setup but the point is they will have both the right and the means, the state apparatus, to determine their future relations with the U.S. nation. Of course, you know. I, I also I also like, I mean, that ties into uh, to the lending quote, is um, <clears throat> uh, he, like, for coming closer 
even a fusion of nations. Like the fusion of nations that actually applies yeah. to Pan Africanism because Pan Africanists are not like there, there's no ethno nationalism to Pan Africanism because there's even within Pan Af- you have different groups of like Afro descendant people. You have like like look even on the African continent. And this is what's made Pan Africanism so difficult is that like um, the African continent is literally the most genetically diverse continent. Um, the second would be the Indian subcontinent is that like you have a lot of different groups of people in terms of ethnicities and cultures um, and Africa is the most diverse in terms of that. And so, yeah, people who've been, you know, like the Maasai, Zulu, Nubians, um, Hausa, Fulani, Yoruba, Igbo, Akant, like you have all these different groups and ethnic groups of people on the African continent. And then the diaspora is also diverse. You have, you know, African-Americans, but then you have also black Puerto Ricans, black Brazilians, um, black Cubans, like uh, 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 black Colombians. Um, and, you know, we're all part of this sort of, I guess, larger um, black global nation, if that makes sense. But like we all have like our different things. A, a, a good analogy would be like Polynesia is that like there's um the Chamorro, Hawaiian, um, uh, Maori people. Um, they're all like on separate islands, but they're all connected under Polynesia. So in, in, in that respect, it's like to compare, compare it to Pan-Africanism is that like it's not like we want particularly separate nation states but we want like basically self-determination for each like group of people but like we're all part of like this one larger unit and with lenin quote the lenin quote the way it applies is like okay everyone like we can basically respect each person's right to self-determination but like we can still sort of share ideas um in a democratic uh fashion rather than like i think with the the uh 1950s integration thing was like okay the only way black people can get equality is by integrating and assimilating into a white dominated society and it didn't really address the question of like actual white domination and the so the solution that would be like okay black self-determination so it's like we don't want to be subsumed under a settler colonial nation we want like actual real self-determination to determine our own future and the means to do it and segregation basically robbed us of the means of that and also capitalism i would argue robs us of the means of that but i think it's really interesting like this fusion of nations idea kind of reminds me of um have you ever been to like those asian fusion restaurants you've been oh yeah it's like yeah it's it's i mean i don't know how good a metaphor it is but it's like you know you have like japanese korean Chinese, it's like they're all, you know, their own thing, but like you can kind of fuse them together, but they're all kind of like Asian, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like, uh, you know, anarchists are not wrong in like destroy all nations, but it is like you can't, you know, it's like nation nationalism is kind of like religion in the sense that like Hmm. it isn't necessarily a real thing. I mean, all nations are kind of made up concepts, um, but they are incredibly powerful, and it's like you have to get rid of the underlying motivation for them um but yeah a couple of things i want to make sure we get in here um the yeah what he's saying about really what self-determination means in the immediate sense 
the way he's arguing it, um, and this is basically how I believe it too, is basically completely breaking the back of and destroying the remnants of what he calls like the bourbon aristocracy or the Wall Street Dixiecrats, basically the leftovers of the Confederate, you know, white supremacist, you know, apartheid ruling class, which still basically runs like affairs, you know, runs political economy on the state level in Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, um, you know, most of the South. I, I think a bourbon is like, well, I do declare that the yeah. Negro is inferior to whites. Dominant. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Those, the, you know, the the Southern, you, you know, we all know what we're talking. You, you know what I'm talking about, I guess. Though maybe you don't, because I guess actually a lot of people. Southern ruling class yeah. plantation aristocracy. Right, basically. right. Those, those descendants and that wealth and that power still yeah. exists and still is dominant in um in in southern affairs on the state level that's why like all these that's why you can have like a uh a state that's mostly black and a legislature that's mostly white oh good Um, example of this bourbon class just to put a name mitch mcconnell he cut he he, uh who's uh i mean he's yes uh born in alabama um he he comes from a family of uh slave owners nice yeah 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 so that that tells you yeah like so I'm gonna pull up this just to yeah, just to really just, drive this point. His his ancestors owned yeah like fourteen slaves, uh. So that's not even that much, you know. Yeah, but um, yeah, that's Mitch but, McConnell's a good example of this bourbon class that Haywood is talking. But about. but the pro so at the time he was writing this, the sort of justification that the Communist Party gave for abandoning the uh, self determination thesis was the great migration was the idea that you know because the black belt the historically constituted black homeland you know was intentionally underdeveloped and subjected to uh you know any number of white supremacist terrorism that you know people naturally left it um and you know got jobs in the north and stuff and that for therefore that removed the because you know black people stopped being a minority um then that removed the basis for self-determination um what's interesting about that is that those trends are actually starting to reverse now because you know basically everyone moved to northern cities discover there's still racism then those northern city cities deindustrialized and you know they're basically left holding the bag and I think it's like something like a hundred, I didn't to look it up, but something like a hundred thousand black people left Chicago, you know, in the past 10 years or something. Whoa, wait, 100,000 100, from Chicago? Uh, let me, let me I, look as you, As you look this up, I'm looking up uh, mm-hmm. Mitch McConnell's Wikipedia page and like, yeah. I see Two, his, um, Dupont- 200,000 African Americans have moved out of Chicago in the last two decades. Um, oh wow! Yeah, yeah, wow. and you know they're moving in many ways. They're moving back to the South. So actually, yeah, the, that... you know, this the- his thesis actually is more relevant now than it was when he wrote it mm-hmm. because that sort of you know that territorial in unity I guess is becoming more constituted. So yeah. Um, 
So yeah, I mean, something something to look out for. I mean, part of the part of this stuff is situating yourself in the current reality, material reality and conditions. And I think that's I think that's a big part of it is that, you know, at the time in the 50s and 60s, right, was when it was when America was the, you know, total and complete, you know, world power. It was because all the other um, industrial powers had been like knocked out of uh, contention because of World War II. And it would be a couple decades before they could be serious competitors again. So America was just, you know, that was the best they had ever, America has ever had it. And so that, and that was the period when, you know, it was like, oh, maybe we can afford to give them a little, little civil rights or something. But, um, you know, key, he, uh, black people did not benefit from that. He says, um, the larger, or where is it? Okay. It says, when these comrades and ex-comrades speak of direct in- integration, they can only mean that the perspective is for gradual and continuous improvement in the relative and absolute economic, political, social, and political status of the Negro people. Certainly, if this were the dominant economic trend, we would see during this period of protracted boom under the most favorable conditions an improvement in the relative status of the Negro masses, a closing of the historic differential between Negro and white. But an all-sided examination of the changes of the war and post-war period show nor show no such trend. Quite the contrary, past 18 years show a widening of the gap and a sharp deterioration of the economic and social position of Negroes as compared to whites. Um, hmm. And basically what happened was, yeah, all the white workers moved up and, you know, got moved out into the suburbs and, you know, black people did better, but they were just moving, were taking the places that the white workers had vacated. Um, and he says, you know, a salient feature of the changes of the war and post-war boom period is this relative decline in the economic position of the Negro workers, which is laying the groundwork for a devastating absolute decline in their economic status and the rapidly approaching economic crisis. Now that it took a couple, took a couple decades for that economic crisis to happen in the seventies. But that's it. That's exactly what happened is when, uh, capitalism stalled out, you know, in the seventies and deindustrialization started to happen, black mm-hmm. workers in those Northern and Western cities, you know, got hit the first and, you know, cue to, you know, the Reagan era. And so what's important to understand is that he was talking about this at the, you know, boom of, of American imperial, of the American imperial economy, where we are right now Mm. is, is not nearly as rosy, um, you know? Yeah. And it, cause yeah. And in that period, white, that was the period where white workers had gotten the most share of, yeah. of the, of the benefits. Now mm-hmm. it's now like even white workers are getting squeezed and yeah. Cause the, <laughs> the like, <clears throat> cause I'm sure you and I both know well that like, I think um, even the, cause as we, as we were talking with the DSA member uh, a while ago, like, um white a lot of white people um um in the u.s and i think this 
provides the impetus for a lot of activism behind Bernie Sanders is that a lot of white people are downwardly mobile. So it's like, um, like their parents may have benefited, like got the most spoils of that post-war boom that Haywood is referring yep. to. Um, but now post 2008, like even white people can't get it. Whereas like with black millennials, like our parents really didn't, they didn't benefit as much from the post-war boom as white people. But now we're at the point where it's like, wait a minute. Like, I mean, like, like no one's really like, you can't really say that like millennials as a whole are benefiting from this, this sort of you know post 2010 like no. economy like no one's been no. it's even though like black people are being hurt the worst it's like we're all generationally kind of screwed yeah i mean that the basic social contract of america was that like yeah just you know keep your head down and don't ask too many questions about the empire the system and right. you know eventually you'll get your car and your house and all that stuff and when that's off the table you know as as we've seen as we've seen this past week, I mean, everything is just when the economy is in bad shape, just everything becomes a powder keg. But also, yep, the you know back in the fifties, the argument against black self determination was basically that yeah, capitalism as a progressive force yep. will eventually integrate black people into this economy, and so. There's actually no need for any of this. Um, so I, I want to just make a quick silly point just for the sake of levity. Like I'm on, I'm looking at Mitch McConnell's Wikipedia page and on his early life and education, there's a fucking picture of him in DuPont Manual High School's 1960 yearbook. Cause he was born, he was born in 1942. So he's like, he's basically he's, like he's on not the cusp. Even a boomer. Yeah. He's on like the cusp of boomer. Because, like, Boomer started in 1945, so he's, like, yeah. on the edge of it. But, like, he just looks like he has no lips. He has, like, mm-hmm. sort of a, um, one of those weird, like, kind of World War Two era Nazi-style haircuts. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just, like, his current picture is, like, just looks like a fucking turtle. He's, like, and this is, this guy comes from that bourbon class of southern assholes uh because yeah he comes from a family of slave owners and he's a perfect representative of, like that very southern bourbon elite mm-hmm. class that um Haywood is talking about and also like he um is very much against and he's led opposition to uh stricter fi- uh campaign finance laws um even uh I-, I mean like Mitch McConnell like he's a very yeah, perfect I mean... rep He's a perfect representative of the Republican Party as it is in the sen- in the Senate, and Trump is like, like the Republican mm-hmm. Party like his true face is there. Yeah, Mitch McConnell is like descendant of slave owners and the Southern Bourbon ruling class, and then you have Trump who's just like New York, like kind of fuck you, money, I don't give a shit. Like that's that's the Republican yeah. Party. I I remember like after George W. Bush lost, people were like, "Oh, the Republican Party's dead." Nah, they're they're fine. Yeah, they, like, uh, they're they, fine. No, they're not. They're not. They're not going to go away. I mean, none of this stuff just goes away. Yeah. Um. But you know, back to I guess my point is that these questions, you know, that that period where integration was on the table was like the 
period where the ruling class could afford to be the most generous. Now, yeah. Now that's not happening. I mean, that's not going to be happening. Uh, there's going to be more retrenchment. And so the question of being able to determine for black people be, to be able to determine their own economic future, our own economic future, is going to become a much more important question. Um, and it does yeah. relate to police brutality, self-determination, because it's like, look, if you, you know, if black people have their own state apparatus, I mean, certainly there's a number of, you know, black country, black nations that have repressive state apparatuses, you know, like Jamaica or, um, or you know, other stuff. But at the very least, like, <laughs> if cops try to beat you up, it's like, or kill you, it becomes an international incident, right? Right. Now, now it's like, oh, no, now the consulate is, like, weighing in on it and that kind of stuff because it's like, you know, all black people, wherever they live, would be automatically citizens, no matter if they're, even if they're not living in the South. Um, so that's why I think, that's why I think, like, um, self-determination for all those reasons is is you know should be understood as you know a in under as a response to police violence because it's like the cop you know the cops get all that money and get all you know the cops are the way they are because they have to keep black population in a hyper exploited state so that they can um survive so that they can still be used as like the reserve army of labor to, you know, push all workers' wages down. Um, that's a big part of it, you know. And if we are capable of determining our own economic future, then we don't have to, then there's no reason to even stay in, like, any of those cities or whatever if people are not, you know, can't get good jobs or whatever. It's, so there's no, re you know, it's, I think that it's important to be able to think it, about these things a little bit conceptually and not just be like, oh, you know, well, it's all, it's about reforming the police because, well, I mean, you can't really reform the police. Yeah. I no. mean, there are some things you maybe can do or not. I think I will say that I think cutting the budgets of police departments is something that like, that's a pretty, that's like an immediate thing that I think people need to, and people are starting to cohere around this because you know, in almost any city, it takes up at least like a third of the but third of the entire city budget like right. goes directly to the police. Right. Um, and and also on top of that, I would also like if we're, if there's going to be any kind of like I mean, because there's that whole revolution versus reform thing, right? And like if there's going to be reforms, like they better be good ones. And so I think like another good reform on top of you know cutting their budget is uh, real community control of the police. Like, yeah. the ability of, like, like having, like, a citizen review board that has that power to hire and fire police police officers. So, if there is, like, another George Floyd or a Mike Brown, then the police officers who do that, like, they face serious repercussions from the community. Like, that, I think, and, and it's, um, I wouldn't say it's amazing, it's unsurprising, but it's, like, it's something that you know 
really should be pushed more like especially if the overton window is going to be shifting on the issue of policing like that's something i feel like could could actually work but well it, it, i mean it would i mean it's it seemed like look, that, it, that it, no police department would ever agree to that right that's um, the thing yeah that that's that, the thing. that is yeah. that's basically a revolutionary demand uh since we brought up reformism um he haywood quotes lenin um by saying reformism in general means that people confine themselves to agitation for changes which do not require the removal of the main foundations of the old ruling class changes that are compatible with the preservation of these foundations um Hmm. and he says you know and then he says it is clear that the revisionist position downgrades the negro question eviscerates its revolutionary content agrarian democratic revolution in the deep south reduces it to a fight against racial discrimination and places it in terms acceptable to the negro bourgeois reformists and their allies among the labor bureaucrats and white liberals and he puts liberals in quotation marks (laughs) yeah this is i mean it's yeah it's long but you should definitely anyone should read it because he he does bring the flames in this one yeah I think I I like your point. I mean, I know we're getting close to time, so I yeah. just want to um, uh, mention this. I think your point about like particularly, um, now that <clears throat> it seems like the American economy and empire, whatever you want to call it, um, like something about it is in complete jeopardy, um, like very acute, like crisis and. The thing I think black people, um, you know, black America uh, should face is, you know, how is, um, you know, how are we going to survive? And I think like the question of black self-determination is even more pertinent. Oh, by the, oh my God, I'm getting ADD, but sorry. Like, so Walnut Creek, which is like this very white, very white, uh, like upper middle class suburb um, in the East Bay area, not far from where I live. There's this very bougie ass mall and i see there's a video of people looting the macy's the macy's <laughs> is very posh and there's like these people just fucking looting I, it. I, that's 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 really funny it's apparently <laughs> jake paul was like film was filming himself like looting the mall in this scottsdale arizona you know yeah. what if white people want to do that to, if they want to do that to their own communities Fuck it. Uh, yeah, it looks like they're all a lot of them are dressed in black and they have hoodies <laughs> they, they, they look like they're they look young and then, uh, oh, so apparently Walnut Creek declares curfew after Macy's and Target loot. I just see it on Twitter. Right. <laughs> so, I, you know, how... on, honestly, how is that Macy's? I'm surprised there even are still Macy's, really. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I, the time I've gone to Macy's, I think it was, like, it was before COVID. Um, like, the Macy's, I mean, that Macy's, particularly in Walnut Creek, is, Walnut Creek is so... Like, Walnut Creek is basically a wannabe Beverly Hills. Like, it's basically typical sort of white, petty bourgeois, but it acts like Beverly Hills. And so uh, there's also a video. That's not even where the money is. No, it's not where the money is. No, it's not. The real money is in, like, San Ramon and Palo Alto, like, like real. And Marin and Danville, right? Yeah, Marin and Danville, like, for million-dollar homes. There's this video of, like looters fighting with each other over the clothes they stole and then they're packing it in their fucking car and it's like they're like <laughs> news caught them on video and uh yeah i think what they stole is like 
it, this is like yeah this is very they stole khakis <laughs> no they're stealing like um just like i don't know what the fuck it's just clothes and shit like a like a trash trash bags full of clothes um it's funny i mean like but actually this is a good example of like i mean my point that it seems like the uh american empire capitalist order is uh like this the cracks are showing pretty acutely yeah. in front of people and so the question is for black america is uh you know do we want to tether our fortunes to this system and to me the question is like well there should be like some sort yeah of i mean at that condi- point it, when you phrase it like that it's not even a question right it's just like right exactly so the question is the, the issue is like okay we should have some sort of contingency plan for black america if we want black america to survive for like you know at least another century or two centuries mm-hmm. so so that makes haywood's thesis even more pertinent is that like okay yeah there should be a right for black self-determination because we don't want to tie our t- tie all of our fucking chips into this sinking ship you know because it's like this fucking video yeah. seeing you fall in the creek it's like I'm getting some shot in for it from it because as someone from, you know, the the more working class part of Pittsburgh, it's like people from Walnut Creek always look down upon Pittsburgh, like, like on the working class areas. And it's like, oh, this is funny. People are looting fucking Macy's. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a sign of, um, yeah, you know, the American late capitalist imperial order sort of shaking. And we're seeing all these crises, um. these crises convulse, the public health crisis, the depression um and uh policing uh yeah i think maybe let's go out on a great quote which he is actually quoting uh william worthy uh so he says um a a particularly telling analysis of integrationist delusions was made by william worthy when he speaks of Negroes who entertain illusions about their growing stake of quote unquote equality in an economic social and social order that is not only doomed but is a menace to mankind Shit. by thinking almost exclusively about the winning of civil rights, Negroes are walking backwards into the future and visit envisioned by this sophisticated conservative, <sighs> namely a corporate form of garrison state bristling with external hostility and hated by all the colored peoples of the world. All the Cadillacs and mink coats of all the Negro doctors and realtors will be, in retrospect, an incredible monument to a smug integration of a quote-unquote minority of a minority into a society that, in the final moments of its disintegration, is now going berserk. Dude! (laughs) And that was in 1954. So. Damn! And so a nation now going berserk, the example of yeah. that is a bunch of kids looting a fucking Macy's in Walnut Creek. So, so. And, and America on... Oh my god, I'm seeing on Twitter, like... Because, um, you know, here's the thing about Walnut Creek. There's, like... No, there's very few black people at Walnut Creek. So it's like, I'm pretty sure these are, these are not black people, like... Uh, no. um, like these look, these look like maybe like white kids Man. and like you know white passing latino kids yes no like no white people please show your distress by burning down your own neighborhood <laughs> right uh, <laughs> quote unquote parody um this is i mean this I, I i i again i'm getting probably some sense of 
you know, schadenfreude because cities like Walnut Creek were always looked down upon where I grew up as to like, like, yeah, Pittsburgh. So, but I think this is, um, an example of like, yeah, like it, the American order in very acute, like jeopardy, like something's just, just, yeah, this is a nation kind of gone berserk and it's, yeah. we're witnessing Great. it under Donald Trump. Yeah, and, and it's just like, yeah, I mean, it's just like, liberalism is almost in total free fall at this point. Yeah. You know, it, those, yeah. those, yeah, I mean, those uh, deal-making uh, class, the deal-making class, the, you know, the comprador class, I mean, they have, no, they have nothing to do. They, they're about live their usefulness, so. Yeah. I, you know, I definitely, I think what he's saying now is more relevant than it perhaps has been you know since he even wrote it honestly so you know history is a trip man yeah um, um i guess uh that, there's that famous quote by i think it's Karl marx right first his tragedy I, then then as oh. farce oh i thought you were gonna do the decades and weeks <laughs> one i saw i saw a tweet that was like I believe it was as Lenin said. There are decades when you fuck around, and weeks where we find out. <laughs> and uh, it was definitely one of those weeks. It was definitely one of those weeks where decades are happening. Yeah. So yeah, we, is... I, we will come back. I think, yeah, next week, more, you know, and breaking this down, breaking the whole thing down fully. But you know. Yeah, I mean, it's weird. Like, uh, we. Like, we started with this podcast, because it's actually been, like, a couple months now in our podcast. Uh, yeah, we started in February. Um, yeah. Not May- not intentionally, it just worked out that way. Yeah. May, this is May 31st, 2020, that we're recording it. Um, and, man, at first we were talking about the election and all that. Then the fucking pandemic hit. And now, um, <laughs> riots throughout America. Uh, of, like, looting and... Yeah, so real fun. shit. Yeah, we're giving you like when we say uh, real sun car hours, we mean yeah. the real, real. Yeah, fucking, yeah. I mean, we're trying we're to tr- trying our best to live up to the name, right? And we'll keep going until the government shuts us down. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, which hopefully will not happen, but keep your fingers crossed. Oh. You guys will ride for us. Yeah. All right. Peace, stay safe everyone, and keep the faith. See ya.